Well, welcome to another episode of the Evolver Network podcast. I'm your host, Magenta, and I'm joined by two lovely men today when we're going to talk about water. And I wonder if both of you could briefly introduce yourselves. My name is Andrew Stoker. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I work for an environmental company that does many projects for a Department of Energy lab here in Los Alamos called the Los Alamos National Laboratory. And we are contracted by the Department of Energy to do groundwater sampling and to monitor for various types of contamination among the lab in the groundwater, in the spring water, also in some surface water. And we do other projects around soil sampling and some remediation projects, soil stabilization and stuff like that. But my primary work is with uh, sampling groundwater. And although I do more of the field work side of it and I do less of the analysis side, I do have a hand in looking at the results and kind of seeing what, what goes on with it. That's what I do for my for my work, but I also am very involved with how do we rewild ourselves through wild water and also making sure that we're drinking good water that does not have things in it that uh, are not good for us. So that's a little bit about me. Awesome. Uh, and I'm Jacob Amon. I started off at the Evergreen State College in Washington studying biology and ecology. And I worked on organic farms for about 10 years, uh, biodynamic farms, and did some experimentation with permaculture at the last farm that I was at, which was kind of a eco-village type startup project in eastern Washington. And then I moved to Santa Cruz, California in 2010. The first job I applied to was this hydrogeology environmental engineering firm, and I didn't take any geology or engineering type uh, physics education in as an undergrad, but it seemed really interesting to me and I got the job and mostly what we do is remedial type work. It's a very similar type industry to what Andrew's talking about. We do a lot of groundwater cleanup of solvent releases. There's a lot of particularly solvent releases in the Bay Area related to the high-tech industry and other major industrial releases. We also do aquifer studies. Um, I'm more of a office guy. I do some field work here and there, but primarily I, I'm more on the analytical and report writing and kind of connecting the dots with risk assessment and stuff like that. My understanding of geology and the engineering side of things has been through osmosis and kind of picking that up along the way. But I feel like I've gotten a pretty good grasp of a lot of environmental policy in California and from the US EPA perspective and, and that at that level. And it's really interesting to me, especially in the context of the water issues that are becoming kind of front and center in California and in the world right now. I'll add that both of these guys are fantastic artists. And uh, I know that Andrew studied as a geologist, too, just to put that piece in there. And it's been beautiful to connect with both of you over the years about the environment and science and art and being in a good way on the planet. Uh, and I'm grateful to be able to open up this conversation and learn together today. 
So let's start big picture. The theme for the Evolver Network this quarter is deep dive the ocean and our planetary psyche. And so we're kind of looking at how we're all connected through the water and potentially through our dreams. And so obviously for the bulk of this talk, we're going to be focusing on the water. But in that context, can either of you or both of you describe how the planet's water cycle is all connected? For example, how does how we interact with our local environment filter down into the earth and into the atmosphere, etc.? I guess I could talk a little bit about that. Basically, the hydrologic cycle is, I mean, one is completely connected on all of its sides. And so the major water source we have is the oceans, mostly saline. 86% of the world's evaporation happens over the oceans, and also 78% of precipitation happens over the oceans. So a lot of that evaporation, condensation, and precipitation cycle actually happens over over the ocean itself, and so it doesn't actually reach the land, where we're obviously then getting the water coming down as precipitation in rain, also in fog, also in snow and ice and kind of the wide range of stuff. And, you know, we see it run down into, I mean, usually our streets and, and the land, and uh, it infiltrates our into our surface water and then also down and further into the groundwater. And so what it picks up along the way is what usually impacts the contamination and the things that we see in our water sources, which a lot of municipal places are taking water from, from wells. There's some obviously pumping from larger rivers and surface water. And then, you know, there's everything from snow and ice that gets uh, locked up and springs that come out from the earth and um, and water that goes into plants and actually gets even recycled down into the crust and is released as water or as vapor within the system of the geologic longer processes as well. So that's, I think, kind of a little bit of an overview. I don't know if there's anything that I missed that you can think of, Jacob. Well, you're in Santa Fe over there. And uh, your groundwater is generally quite a bit deeper than here in California, especially most of the sites and projects that I work on, groundwater is sometimes five feet below ground surface or can be quite a bit deeper the further you go inland. But I think one thing that's often uh, misunderstood by a lot of people is they think of uh, aquifers and groundwater as kind of underground lakes, which can exist, for instance, like in karst geology, but more so it's in these cracks and crevices, and there's lots of separations at times, uh, confined spaces of groundwater in between layers of clay, so you have more you know, permeable and impermeable uh, types of subsurface layers and, or stratigraphy, and I think one of the big awakenings that's going to happen in the next few years, especially for places like California or Brazil or parts of the southeast U.S., uh, I mean, there's plenty of places in the, in the world right now that are waking up to the importance of understanding the hydrologic cycle and respecting our water resources is uh, groundwater depletion, the uh, 
like parts of the South Bay and the Central Valley in, in California have uh, sunk, like the actual surface has sunk 20, 30 feet in the last 100 years just from from drilling wells, which we really only got good at drilling wells to deeper levels in the late 1800s when we developed better technologies for that. So where I live here in Santa Cruz in the coast and, you know, in the Bay Area region, generally speaking, a lot of the issues in terms of the Bay, the Monterey Bay or the San Francisco Bay are concerning uh, stormwater runoff and runoff from agricultural uses because there's a lot of contaminants that get contributed to the streams and can percolate into groundwater but also can just be carried out into uh, the bay and cause a lot of algal blooms and just general contamination along the coastline. But starting from the basics is really important because I think generally speaking a lot of people have, we've had, I mean I came from Washington State where there's a lot of water up there, I mean, generally, but there's also decreasing snowpack and glacier depth throughout the Cascades. Certainly the Sierras right now have almost no snow. So people are, I think starting with the basics is really good to come at it from this general level of education so everybody kind of starts to get on the same page and in respecting the process itself um, so that we can then target a lot of the issues that we're really facing both as residential and commercial consumers but these larger major corporate forces that have a lot of power over our, our water resources. Right. It's amazing to me how little watershed education happens in school yeah. as a matter of regular education and it, I mean it seems like we're about to face the moment in a lot of places across the whole world where people are going to have to learn that for health and survival reasons. So hopefully we can share as much as we can before things get to that point. I have a couple really big picture questions about our bodies and how we absorb everything that gets put into the water, but I want to stick to specifics for a little bit longer. Can we drill down into a little bit about how groundwater sinks in and gets stored and also how different things can act as filters for that process? For example, you mentioned water running through a street, which may pick up oil and other contaminants. What are some practices that cities do to filter that water? What are some examples in permaculture of making sure groundwater absorbs in right where it lands and doesn't run off and carry topsoil off with it? And what are some other methods of providing filtration for that process, whether that's naturally occurring through rocks or plants or other types of remediation or protective measures that can be created to protect those cycles and, and make sure that the toxins are being processed before they get stored underground? Andrew? I'll fill a little bit in that I know about it. I'm actually curious to hear what you've got to say. But, I mean, obviously vegetation is some of our best ways of both filtering and some things can be filtered via vegetation itself. It's tougher with, like, metals and, and there are, you know, so many different contaminants that we have that is not just going to be picked up by vegetation. But being able to have both ways of decreasing the energy of the water. Around here in New Mexico, 
we have pretty big monsoon season, and so we have very high bursts of lots of rain coming down. Last year, both Colorado and us had kind of, it was called a thousand-year rain, and we had in three or four days, I can't remember what the numbers were. I mean, they ranged throughout the, the Mountain West, but there was, I think, somewhere around like two or three feet of rain fell up in the Boulder area. We got a little bit less than that, but still, when you have that much area that has that much rain fall at once, and you have a lot of you know desert vegetation, which is minimal, um, especially combined with the wildfires, which we've also been having, California's also been having really bad of, because the wildfires, one, burn vegetation, they also will like heat up the soil and becomes even more hydrophobic or at least a lot more water will just will not infiltrate it'll flow over the top and so you get larger erosion and the and the different ways that that water can you know kind of break down our physical environment and so the idea that our our water does go over the surface a lot during high events but when, where there are places where it slows or just the regular rain or from streams, it does infiltrate down into the groundwater, just kind of surface easily. But then there are different geologic formations like faults and things that act as conduits for that water to reach further down into the deep aquifer. So in Los Alamos and here in Santa Fe, you get more like the 1,400 feet, 2,000 feet deep for your wells and groundwater might be at like 700 to 1,000 depending on where you are. So it's pretty deep, but over the course of tens of years, we have seen, and in longer, but tens of years, have seen contaminants even reach down to 700 feet. And some of the things, hexavalent chrome is an issue up in Los Alamos, especially in the groundwater at the depths of drinking water, but in the surface water, it, it moves slowly, but those uh, geologic features act as conduits for it to go deeper. So that's kind of a little bit about some of those processes, and I definitely want to punt it to you, Jacob. What are some of these things that we can that we can filter and other practices that we can minimize the impact? Yeah, well, my experience uh, working on farms for about 10 years up in Washington State it really was kind of a typical trajectory of why a lot of people are drawn to alternative agriculture or permaculture. And that's just walking through fields, seeing a lot of erosion, watching people till a lot, and just observing the amount of ev evaporation that happens and water loss. It hurts to drive through places in California here where we are having such crazy water issues and have been periodically since its inception and since farming became a major thing here, I definitely was extremely drawn to perennial agricultural systems because of that. Uh, I first got into perennial agriculture by reading Wes Jackson's book. He has the Land Institute, which has been experimenting with plant breeding on perennial grains and polycultural uh, grain plantings in Salina, Kansas since I think the late 70s. And uh, in places like New Mexico, um, and I spent a lot of time in New Mexico, uh, my family lived there for a number of years, and there's never going to be a lot of agriculture in New Mexico, but there certainly is some. But in, like in California, the Central Valley was just ready for it. And I think 
land management practices in general, where you're talking about plants being able to capture some metal, they can do some uptake of metals and heavy metals. You know, people are concerned about eating plants with too many heavy metals in them. People talk about mycoremediation to take up petroleum hydrocarbons and other contaminants that uh, mushrooms can draw and consume and neutralize. But really, like, once contamination gets into a layer of the subsurface that's somewhat or totally inaccessible to digging out or remediating with plants that have deep roots, you know, there's certain, a lot of plants in permaculture that are popular for drawing up deeper minerals from the subsurface. Some of those also can um, assist with neutralizing uh, contaminated sites. But really, a lot of the contamination out there that impacts the hydrologic cycle is deeper, and it's stuff that's hard to deal with. And the real problem that we have is accumulating cumulative impacts that are really costly to deal with, like nitrates in California and a lot of major agricultural regions are a huge problem that has largely been ignored because the agricultural lobby is huge and it's tied in with the petrochemical lobby and the oil industry. And, you know, it's, it's subsidized all kind of, by the government. <laughs> yeah, it's subsidized, but it's all part of the same kind of vicious cycle where nitrogen, um, ammonium nitrate, and uh, fertilizer applications have been steadily increasing for a lot of types of agriculture and that's been steadily increasing nitrate contamination in groundwater. It's definitely having a lot of major health effects in California, largely impacting minority and low-income farm worker communities that may not even have the resources or the health care support to be able to understand or communicate their problems that their kids and that their elderly are having from that contamination. So that's just one example, but... Can uh, you describe with nitrates uh, what what that can cause in the body if you consume them? I did do some reading on that a couple years ago, um, but it's I've been putting it on the back burner to research more. I'm not going to say because I don't specifically remember a lot of the health effects um, from nitrate. Uh, it's, it's long-term exposure. Kids that drink nitrate-contaminated water from when they're five, or, you know, from when they're born through, let's say they move away from the farm or something at age 20, that's a long time. And I, I don't remember. I, yeah, I, I'd, I'd have to look it up. Okay. It's definitely a major problem. I mean, the California State Water Resources Control Board has made it a priority issue in the last few years. The, really, the problem with that is that we gradually lose more and more quality groundwater resources. You know, the more and more resources that we contaminate, whether it's from hydraulic fracturing, let's say they already think that those resources are marginal and they pump hydrocarbon, petroleum hydrocarbon contaminated groundwater from hydraulic fracturing back into these deeper aquifers. Well, they're like, well, we don't need these resources right now, but what if it migrates or what if someone drills a well nearby and that pulls it over that direction? It's this general kind of lack of foresight and mismanagement because people, because a lot of these industries like hydraulic fracturing or like uh, agriculture have been able to circumvent 
a lot of the protective measures that are in place for smaller point source type contamination like the gasoline station at the at the corner uh, you know in town that's like a, a much easier thing to address than a farm that's spraying a lot of fertilizer across the huge area I don't know I, I hope that kind of gets to what we were talking or what your question was yeah little, but. yeah it totally does and I'm on, on a policy level I'm really curious about what can and what may have to happen around that in the future like as California for example, which is facing a severe drought that is continuing and projected to continue for quite some time as it becomes more and more obvious that there is a a dearth of water resources. How is that going to force us to not just look at the laws that are in place for specific situations that again have to go through these lobbying processes? And it's, it's really hard to think in that black and white way that those legal and economic systems are set up at the complexity and interconnectedness of the water cycles. And for example, mm. you have a deep aquifer and if toxins from that get pulled up into another body, like these are, I'm assuming a lot of these bodies of water underground are in, interconnected the same way above ground that lakes and streams and mountains and eventually the ocean are interconnected. When, when laws are by, by state and by industry, I just think it's a, a complex problem that we may be forced to look at in more detail or take localized, responsible, uh, local, I don't know, governance and communication to take, char- take charge of. I'm really, I've been following what's happening in different places and curious to see how we're going to make it through these sorts of things because I, I think we're really starting to get to the point where we'll be coming up against these hard resource gaps and will be, again, like forced if you look at it in a, a, a bad way, I suppose. But also um, here's the natural process of us learning to be on the planet again <laughs> and, and yeah. with each other at the scale that we are and with the technologies that we've developed, whether that's for transportation or creative expression, find that whole, the, the political spectrum of, of things and how these decisions get made is one interesting element about it. I'm wondering if both of you can share about case studies that you've experienced of polluted water and what was possible to to do about it and what you saw was successfully done or attempted to do. I'll (laughs) say a couple quick ones. I mean, it's really difficult because especially when we're talking about, um, I mean, a lot of the contamination at, at Lanel at the labs is it's where they develop the nuclear bombs. It's where they still do a bunch of high-explosive outdoor testing. And so you do see radiation in some places. You see high-explosive contaminants predominantly. And so my experience is from that. And I know we had a, a project that actually was was really cool and worked really well with breaking down the contaminants. And so a lot of processes of filtering are essentially just pulling it out of the water and then you have whatever medium you have that you pulled it out with, usually like activated carbon, just like in a Brita filter and stuff, can pull out um, high explosive contaminants and it can pull out um, a lot of different things that does a pretty good job of doing that actually. But then you have your all the contaminants in one little spot, then you dispose of that, and then it's just somewhere else, which is... No, you're not drinking it, but you're kind of 
punting it down the line. Mm-hmm. So, but another, a cool project we had was actually taking zero-valent zero iron, and it's just, just a specific type of iron with valence, obviously, but it, it was able to actually break down the chemicals and break down the high explosives, the RDX, TNT, HMX stuff, to a, I mean, I can't remember what the results of that came out, except for that it, it was non-toxic and that the constituents themselves broke down to be inert, or at least to our knowledge. And that's where, I mean, there wasn't long-term uses of people drinking the end or whatever. But it is it is interesting to see these different processes that, one, on large scale, cost lots of money. And especially the testing and especially on the policy side too is when you have the incentives or the people pushing for these contaminants to be taken care of, the people who could be blamed are finding ways to get out of it and to not have the responsibility. And so that's what's really tough on these policy sides is how do we, one, as a collective like species, <laughs> make these things happen because a lot of these, especially the borderline water sources that do need to at least have some type of cleaning up to one, try and make those more drinkable to get the funding to be able to do that. And obviously governmental side and maybe cutting down our military budget would help. Uh, That's a big idea. Um, But you know, how can we really put the resources towards this and have the people know about how important this is and how you know so many larger private private industries or uh, private companies and investors are buying up big water sources because it's anticipating that it's going to be more and more of a of a major resource that that is difficult but there are ways to do it even like filtering uh, gray water systems with wetlands type of plants and grasses is actually a pretty good way on the permaculture side to be able to reuse gray water, especially for for watering gardens. So there are smaller scale stuff to do as far as like our personal waste and and treating that Mm -hmm. stuff. But on the radiological side, on the chemical side, it's a very difficult problem. I guess taking a step back, how do we find contamination in groundwater or at sites, that's really the first step. And there's required monitoring by state and you know local agencies for water resources, you know, for private wells or for public wells. And sometimes they miss stuff. Sometimes they're only analyzing for so much because chemical analysis at laboratories is expensive. Really expensive. Um, yeah, and and our knowledge of toxicology and how different compounds affect people over time is really still pretty immature compared to hopefully where it's going to be in 30 years from now, just compared to where it was 30 years ago. So there's a lot of contamination out there that is yet to be found, uh, first of all, because there's a lot of properties that have been owned by the same party for a long time and they haven't exchanged hands so there's never been due diligence to see you know what's there and what was done here you know for the last hundred years there's a lot of impacts from industrialization and the US is kind of on the healing I think really we're on the more healing end of that compared to like China or maybe uh, Russia and 
other part, developing parts of the world, I mean, certainly China is quite developed now, but it takes a while to get the constituency up there of the public to create the kind of critical mass and change. I mean, of course, Richard Nixon helped create the EPA. So, you know, it's, uh, these things happen at unique times. And my company makes a lot of its bread and butter off of remediation, groundwater remediation in particular. And a lot of that in California has been funded through various uh, means, but um, a lot of that has been petroleum hydrocarbon cleanups of gas stations and from underground storage tanks and whatnot, and that's kind of tapered off because of more relaxed standards in the last three years now. But we also have worked on a lot of uh, solvent, chlorinated solvent, volatile organic compound release sites. Can you describe what that is and happens there? Yeah. So I think this is a key part of the whole equation here is that we as consumers, there's been this evolution of technology, you know, with companies like Apple and whatnot who have popularized technology. Now we all are consuming more and more high technology as devices and tools and whatnot. And the history of that industry is that it's has involved a lot of compounds or chemicals and metals that are quite toxic to the environment, to plants, animals, and humans. And the Bay Area, beginning with a lot of DOD funding back in the late 50s and 60s, and later a lot of investment, Wall Street investment, uh, has a lot of history of manufacturing and research and development that has utilized a lot of, in particular, chlorinated compounds. So the evolution away from using chlorinated, halogenated compounds has kind of been occurring over the last 20 to 30 years and that's similar to the evolution away from using like DDT persistent uh, organochlorine pesticides that you know Rachel Carson and Silent Spring drew attention to in the 60s. Chlorinated compounds are quite toxic to biological organisms and a lot of them uh, accumulate and bioaccumulate and biomagnify in the environment through in, in species and in plants and it's something that like Apple last year uh, said they were stop uh, gonna stop using I think hexane I don't think they uh, at, at some of their Foxconn facilities in China that's not chlorinated but you know it's basically similar to gasoline but uh, there's there's kind of been this evolution away from using pretty toxic stuff and there's been a lot of impacts from those practices that we've done a lot to remediate them similar to what Andrew was describing but there's only so much you can remediate a lot of these types of releases because they can spread out and move into lower aquifers and it's uh, it's quite costly, and you have to have deep pockets. If the you know company goes bankrupt, well, then who's going to pay for cleaning it up? You know, I mean, personally, I think the evolution should be towards more and more insurance type public programs where you 
tax based on usage. We all use cell phones. We all use computers, and we you know we all drive cars. Well, California created this underground storage tank cleanup fund in the 1980s, which has paid out billions of dollars to clean up petroleum hydrocarbon releases um, from gas stations and auto repair shops and any company that was managing underground storage tanks that contain fuel. Anyways, uh, I kind of just wanted to draw it kind of back into the consumer level of what we choose to purchase and what we choose to, um, how we participate in this whole equation. And it's the same thing with food. Buying organic food, if it's from Safeway or even Whole Foods, that's coming from a major organic farm. From my own experience, there's plenty of major industrial scale organic farms that have terrible water management practices, um, erosion problems, using marginalized lands to qualify as organic because they were not previously grown on. Um, it really is, you know, coming back to instead of always demanding things from um, and then complaining about the lack of effective policy decisions from California or the US government, the most we can really do is by buying from farmers markets, coming back to those local choices that we make in our consumer choices because that's where we really have the most power and at the same time working towards better policy decisions and yeah, but I think that's a really key part of all of this is knowing where these contamination sources come from and who and how, like this whole issue with demanding that they put more restrictions on farmers, it's a really complicated issue because like uh, Magenta, you were pointing out, you know, a lot of these farm workers and even farm owners in California, there's millions of farm workers and many of them are make minimum wage or less and impacting their livelihood and also impacting the amount of food production is something that has to be dealt with very carefully um, versus taking shorter showers and and whatnot. So I, I think I'll let someone else talk now. But <laughs> So we've covered a fair amount of heavy things. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I just want to invite the listeners to be present with that and relax in any of that knowledge that might have been new or overwhelming and know that we're just talking it through and sharing what we know so yeah. that we can know how to live in better integrity and learning from these two wonderful guys. I'm really grateful for you both for sharing the information that you have. And along the lines of solutions, I'm wondering if you can both share uh, a few more bits toward how a person can have a truly sustainable relationship with water. And is that possible right now and how? I guess there's a, f a few things that, that I'm, I'm learning and um, really trying to work with is we take on water or contaminants in water through through food, through the pesticides and what is on our food, so washing what we can, but getting the local organic, especially farmer's market. I mean, really, even local can be more more impactful for 
eating good food than organic, not all the time, but it, it's, it's a pretty big impact as far as, especially your carbon footprint. Your food ha is so big for what type of contaminants you can take in and also water usage with that. Also, even like our, our tap water. So a lot of people just drink tap water. And in some places, you're, you're going to have pretty, pretty good tap water compared to other places. But it's always going to be almost always chlorinated for sure, which is not good for our bodies. Fluoridated, fluoride has been a big issue recently and becoming, um, I think, more and more research and more and more stuff is coming out with that as to its negative impacts on our body. And we also uptake that a lot through, even just through the shower. So just being contacted it so we don't have to drink it. So it's how do we look at the filters that we can use to drink? How can we um, drink spring water? Uh, Daniel Vitalis has findaspring.com and you can look near you and try and find water that um, I think they have some resources to see what is tested, but a lot of the spring water, I mean, the higher up in the mountains, the less of a um, possibility you have of having contaminants in it, but really bringing, and you can iodine the water or put it through a filter to make sure, but if you're getting it straight out of the source, you know, there, there can be metals and there can be other stuff in it, but there's, um, there's ways to test it. And so really looking at how do we minimize our intake of the contaminants in the water and also of being really mindful of the way we use it. And so rainwater catchments, being smart with what we do with our water, how can we minimize our, our use of it, you know, not running the sink and all the, the little things like that. But it's a lot of how do we take on and put into our bodies water that's good for us and is really going to actually help our health because there's a lot of negative um, impacts in the in the major ways that we that we take in water and use it. So as far as the the sustainable and, and really resilient way is, it's tough with where we find ourselves and you know different geographies are going to be different amounts of water that is available and used and we just have to do as much as we can to look up our local ecology to um, to think about the best and smart ways to use that and permaculture practices are very similar among around the world in its basic tenets but the specific applications are are, spe are important to look at for where you are so here in this in New Mexico has a lot of similarities to areas in California, and I, I mean I grew up in Carmel, Monterey, California, so I have a good amount of history in nice. seeing the, the yeah the runoff from the Salinas Valley and the eutrophication. Yeah. You know it's 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 insane. So it's you know how do we one like like you were saying, Jacob, support the the local food and local agricultural practices and voice and educate how important it is for us to do it smartly and to minimize like I mean GMOs and their increased use of pesticides herbicides all that stuff is just increasing how much is going into our our runoff and all that so that those are kind of a few things of how we can really bring awareness around water and around how we can be more aware of how it's used and how we can more smartly put water into our bodies and onto our food and stuff like that, that is better for us. Yeah. I also would like to say that I think we've made a lot of progress as a country and as a global 
society too in consciousness around environmental quality think of relative to the greatest generation and World War II um, just the level of kind of wanton just go out there and do stuff no environmental impact statements or reviews and no major obstacles just things got done and a lot of you know crazy stuff was done that uh, that definitely had a lot of environmental impact. I think we've made a lot of progress, and I also think that, for the most part, people have pretty good water. But I do think that, again, I'm passionate about the issues around water quality and contamination and all that, because I think it more so impacts lower-income people, people that generally environmental quality is generally better for people of better socioeconomic status because they aren't situated as much next to commercial and industrial land uses. They have the resources to make sure that they are getting good water, that they're getting better food, potentially. So I think it's something to be passionate about on a socio, just on a, you know, on a compassionate level. I personally want to live in a place that has clean air, that has good water. I want to have a good relationship to water. You know, I like going to the ocean and feeling like it's safe. I like going to a lake and, and feeling like it's safe, you know. Um, and I want to work to help, you know, ensure that. I also feel like, you know, this kind of the the spiritual kind of component to water there was that book that came out. Actually, it was, uh, what was it, Blue Brain? I'm going to have to look it up here. I actually have it. It's like probably right over here. It was written by a guy in, I think he lives in near Santa Cruz here, uh, Blue Brain. Yeah, I heard an NPR piece on it, and then I got it for Christmas. And it's just about, like, I haven't read it yet, but I heard the guy talk about it on NPR. And it's about the human experience with water and, and blue and just the healing effects of, of that, and I think it's it's totally true, and I, I feel like my encounters with biodynamic farming where you spin, you churn water, and then different vortexing uh, technologies, there's a lot of awareness that's increasing around how we can really get, first of all, really pure water, but also... Uh, kind of change our entire relationship to water as a, a medium for uh, I'm not being very poetic about this well, maybe I can really, get help <laughs> yeah it's, like, it's part of it too is people have used water to, yeah. to specifically heal and I think I mean a kind of a piece of that is the microcrystalline structure of water and how vortexing can imprint it with I mean, water flows in nature in vortex physics, and in, in it's that type of form in the 90-degree turns of pipes, and that type of right. stuff really breaks up that small essence. And I think that biodynamic piece of it is so important. And even, I mean, right. um, Mimoto, or Miyamoto is the guy who's who famous for doing the intention studies with right. putting w words on water and and being able to photograph the micro microcrystalline structure of it and it's really incredible the things that come out of that and I think it's just speaks to 
there's so much water in the environment. There's, what is it, 72% of our body is water? I forget, but a, a large amount. And how? what type of impacts can we put on it? And so it's, it is very much like it's so much of our body. It's so much of our of our world and it's you know potentially impacted by not only our thoughts but also like the things that we put into it too so it's it's this whole awareness that it is the piece of that I hope people can be inspired to learn more about the whole cycle and about some of these things and infiltrations and all of that can we bring in Casey for a cameo is he still there yeah, cool and while Come he's getting in. settled I wanted to bring up one point which I always think of when being in integrity with water there's an ayahuasca that I've sat with before and in every ceremony people drink out of a shared water pitcher to to really honor the sacredness of water and be together in ceremonial approach to that and I think a lot of modernized cultures lose that direct connection with water because we're in cities where it comes to us through pipes. You turn on the tap and it's there. You go to the bathroom and you use fresh water that's been processed through expensive plants. And then you go to the bathroom in the water and that gets flushed through pipes. You don't see where it goes. You're not connected with that natural cycle of your what comes into your body goes back into the ground. And it, it still does through mediated processes, but having direct mm -hmm. contact with nature. And also, you know, one side of being in integrity with the environment and caring for the other species that also encounter all of these materials that go into the water is using natural materials. Um, there's a whole natural building movement. There's, like Andrew mentioned, re rewilding there are, you know, people going back to ancient and indigenous ways of of building and working with resources and tending to and also praying to and acknowledging water as a living being that we share life with and share a body with. Um, so yeah. I also really encourage people to read indigenous worldviews from wherever you are from on the planet and learn about how they care for the water, learn about where they are right now. And are they okay? And what's going on with them? In a lot of places in the United States, for example, indigenous people are on reservations that are close to environmental, serious environmental water hazards. And yeah. so being informed about that just helps you look at the, the whole picture and the history of how we are with water, with the cosmos, with, you know, being one type of living being on this whole diverse planetary being that has lots of other living beings playing with us, including water. And I find a lot of enjoyment of treating water as a living being. And I think that's something that maybe Casey can describe to us with uh, spring water and vortexing. And that concludes the first part of our interview with Andrew Stoker and Jacob Amon about water cycles. Please continue on to part two to hear the rest of the interview where we get cosmic. We're joined by Casey Greenling, an artist and chef who gives us the lowdown on water vortexing and spring water. Andrew chimes in with fascinating recent scientific theories of space weather, and we conclude the podcast. Please check out the theme for the Evolver Network this solstice, Deep Dive, the Ocean and Our Planetary Psyche. You can find more information on our website at evolvernetwork.org 
and you can join the conversation online by using the hashtag OceanDreams.